All right. Well, let's get going. It's nice to have Terry and Laura back with us. They were able to make it down, so that was always good. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been in this new series called In His Image, and we're looking at what this means for you and I. Ultimately, it is getting to the part of the believer's authority, but is recognizing who we are in Christ. Because what you have to know and what you have to believe is who does God say you are? It really doesn't matter anything else. What does God say about you? What did God intend for you? What does He intend for all of us and humanity as a whole? And we've been in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. And then God blessed him, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And as I've showed you guys, is that word image, created in his image, it's not like fingers and toes and eyeballs and personality or any of that stuff. It's his representative, his imager. Adam on earth was God. He was God on this earth. Authority had been handed to him. He says, all authority here. He says, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish, the sea, birds, the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So if it moved, it was under his domain. And then we saw where he handed that over, in a sense. In in, in Genesis 3, where, where the fall of Satan and the fall of man happens, he hands that authority. We know that from other parts of Scripture. Do you realize there are things in Scripture that is implied, and there are things that are very direct? This was not a direct statement. There is nothing in the Scripture that says, okay, at the moment that Adam sinned, he then took his authority and handed it over to Satan. It doesn't say that, but it is certainly implied. It is implied in a number of ways of what went on and what goes on in the earth, but it's also implied when he tempts Jesus and says, if you will fall down and worship me, everything you see, I will give to you. It is not a temptation if it did not belong to him. Right? It's not a temptation. Okay? I could take the keys to Terry's truck and says, if you give me $20, I will give this truck to you. If you give me $20... You're an idiot. Because that truck don't belong to me. There's no temptation there. So you've got to understand that. Man's original design was to rule and reign on the earth. Fair enough? Let me ask you this. We talk about the area of healing. Was God's design for man to be healed and to be well? Has to be. Our body heals itself. You ever had a cut? You want one? Okay. Right? The argument is against the design that if God's will isn't to heal, then why did He design us to heal itself? Doesn't make sense. If it wasn't God's design for man to have an authority on this earth, then why did He do it in the beginning? Think about that. Now, what happens here is we see that design played out. The next phase of that aspect is what we see with the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 19 verse 3, he says, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. 
Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So a kingdom of priests is what? A go-between between God and man, and a holy nation is a nation set apart. So God put Israel as an example of what it looks like to be in a covenant relationship with God. Now there were strings attached to that, and God always kept His promise. He says, if you do it, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. And guess what? They did both. They saw both. But God took this nation and said, you will be a special people to me above all people. Do you guys know what all means? just what you think it means it's above all so there was something unique but look in chapter 20 verse 7 it says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain now what is he talking about he is talking about taking on the name of Yahweh but doing it in a way haphazardly not representing him you see for them in these ten commandments there were things that they had to do Sabbath keeping, right? Dietary laws. All of these things they had to do. And it was something that God ordained. And if God said, do it, what should you do? Just do it, right? Not complicated. But when he gets to this part here, we have turned this into don't use God's name in a cuss word, but that's not what it's talking about. Because this nation, set apart from all others, were to represent God on this earth. If you take my name upon you and you're not willing to do what I've told you to do, then you are not representing me. You have taken my name in vain. You guys got that? I hope you understand that because it's been mistaught for so many years. So in other words, you're claiming to be a child of God, but you're living like a child of the devil. So therefore, you have taken his name in vain. You guys with me so far? We get this? We're following along? Okay, good. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, He, who is He? It's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and on that are on earth, visible and invisible, throne, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. Now, He is the image of the invisible God. Who was? Jesus was. That means that Adam was His imager and failed. Israel was His imager and failed. And Jesus was His imager and got it right. You see, Jesus was representing the Father. He represented God on this earth. Can we look to Jesus to see what God meant on certain things? Yeah. In other words, when Jesus went around healing, did he go and say, okay, give me five minutes. I'm going to pray and ask if it's the Lord's will for you to be healed today. No, because he already knew what the will of the Father is. He said, I don't do anything I haven't seen him do. I don't say anything I haven't heard him say. He didn't have to ask. He knew. We debate it. So as we're looking at this from a, a, a bird's eye view, we've got man who was God's imager who broke God's laws. His authority is handed over to Satan. Then ultimately when Jesus comes, he comes 
as God's imager, as a man who was wrongfully put to death because it says the wages of sin is death. He did not sin, so death could not hold him. He defeats death through his resurrection. He restores man to himself. And what does he do? He reinstates his authority. Represent me on this earth. In Ephesians chapter 1, we see this very clearly, verse 15. It says, Therefore I also, after I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him him from the dead and seated him at his right hand into heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come that is shouting material right there seated at the right hand of the father above everything there is no principality there's no power there's no dominion there's nothing that has been named which is everything that is above him he put all things under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is the head. We are the body. If the head seated at the right hand, the seat of authority, so is the body. Chapter 2, verse 1, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, when were by nature the children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together. And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So now he goes from the implied portion of the head and the body. Not separated but together at the right hand of the Father. To the direct portion. And he made us sit together in the heavenly places. So if you weren't sure if I was just kind of pulling that out of thin air. He kind of clarified it doesn't it so if we are the church no longer the sons of disobedience then we are the body of Christ and if the body is attached to the head then the authority from that head which is above every principality power darkness dominion it doesn't matter everything that is named what do we fear we fear everything it makes no sense but we do it you see, we're not on mission for God. We're on mission for us. We just want to bring God along for the ride. We want to do what we want to do. I'm just going to go, and maybe if I go over here, God will do something great. Or maybe if I go over there, God will use me in this way. What if we just get our hearts right? What if we started with that? You see, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it says, And Jesus came to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. You know what the word all means? Okay, good. You're, you're keeping up. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So all authority has been given to him. And then he says, Because of that, go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So was this a suggestion or was this a command? 
Okay, and the command was to do what? Make disciples with the authority of Jesus. Fair enough? Disciples aren't born, they're made. So what is a disciple? We've got to be able to answer this question. Because we know the disciples, which later get known as the apostles. But do you realize that Jesus had thousands of disciples? We just know about 12 of them specifically. He had thousands of disciples. We see during the life of Christ where his disciples were baptizing people, making them disciples. So what does that even mean? Well, essentially, in its, in its simplest form, it's someone associated with the teacher. You hear it in football all the time. You've got these coaching trees that take place. They were a disciple of, we don't necessarily use that word anymore, but that is essentially what it is. They were a disciple of this person. The old K-State coach, his name slipped in my mind. But he was one that when you trace the tree out, like all of these incredible coaches came from this man. They all learned under this man. And they took what they learned and they went and they used it and became successful. These people, these disciples are known for their association because of their speech and their action reflect the values and the teachings of that individual. Right? So when we understand what a disciple is, and we look around at what the church has become in America today, how many disciples are there? Not as many that go every Sunday. Not as many that attend a service. Right? Because to be a disciple meant it was something that separated you from anything else and everything you did was a reflection of that person. You know what we call that? An imager. You see, John the Baptist had disciples and what were they? They were people that carried his teaching. Many rabbis had disciples. And they were people who carried their teaching. If you've ever discipled somebody especially in the early days when they don't know better, and I'm going to use me as an example of that, you're teaching them things out of Scripture, but they can't remember what the Scripture is. They say, yeah, but Chris says, right? Right? That's a dangerous place to be in long term. As long as what Chris is saying lines up with Scripture, we're okay. And it always works like that, just so you know. I never get anything wrong. Okay, and if you can't pick up on sarcasm, see me after service. So, We've got to get this idea. The name of Jesus was upon these people. They represented him. There were several groups at that time, and I'm only going to name a few, and you're probably familiar with these guys, but the Pharisees, as an example. The word Pharisee, or what it comes from, is an Aramaic room. It's like parush, or parusha. It's one who is separated. They're separatists. They had separated from other Jewish sects and they also separated themselves from Rome they were not going along with what Rome was doing they were not okay with the immorality that was taking place this name associated them together kind of like a biker gang wear your leather your leather jacket or whatever so they had a certain look that they had they had a certain way that they believed and those beliefs impacted the way that they acted you guys understand that there's another group called the Sadducees and they were called Zadokites or Zekdokium or something like that but they were founded by this man named Zadok it was around the second century BC and the word Sadducees just simply means to be righteous but these guys had rejected the supernatural 
and that played a part into their belief system. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that somebody could be supernaturally healed. They didn't believe any of that. They didn't believe in angels. But they also wanted to keep the peace. So if Rome said something, they kind of went along with it because, well, it's okay. It'll be all right. This is the more liberal sect. The other ones, the Pharisees, would have been the more uh, conservative sect. That's really how you look at it. Then there was a group called the Herodians. And these guys were devoted, and this one isn't a shock, to King Herod. And they basically went along with whatever he or Rome said. It was gospel truth to them. And these are just three. There were tons of different sects, and there were some before that and some after that. But they were all associated together, and you could tell who they were based on the way that they lived their lives, the things that they believed. It was very obvious what they were. But what would we call somebody who claims to be a disciple of Jesus? What name, what word do we associate with that? It's the word Christian. Now we never stop and ask this, why? Why do we call somebody this? Because here is some late breaking news for you. Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. Okay? You didn't know that. Now you do. Okay? Christ is simply a title. Anointed one. All it means. And we use the term Christian and we throw it around. You've experienced this, right? If you've ever had a negative interaction with somebody and they know you're a Christian, what do they say? That's not how a Christian should act. You've heard that, right? Now sometimes that's a true statement. But most of the time for them it's a get out of jail free card. Because it'll make you consider yourself. Let me give you an example of this, this story. I grew up in the church. I am so grateful to this lady, and maybe I've told you guys this story. My family is not a Christian family, okay? We were not uh, God-fearing folk. And when I was a kid, my parents attempted, they thought it would be good for us to go to church. When I'm saying kid, I'm saying like Josiah's age kid. And we attended this little Baptist church for a little while. And here's two things that I remember about this little Baptist church, is that during the service, I would lay under the pews and pick the gum off the bottom of the pews. And I thought it was so fun because you get your finger up in there and it would kind of pop loose. Now, I don't know how old that gum was. And no, I did not chew it, if that's what you're thinking, okay? Anyway. But I, 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 I remember that. And then I also remember in the middle of it, we were singing a hymn and some lady passed out and had to call an ambulance. And I thought that was awesome. So that's what I remember about this church. But my mom had this friend who had been inviting her to their church for months and maybe even years. I don't know. And my mom didn't want to go. And the reason my mom didn't want to go is because, frankly, they had a good life. They were living their life. They were doing what they wanted. They were very secular. And so finally she convinced them to go. And we went. And uh, again, I'm still very young. And both my parents gave their life to Christ. And it transformed my family. Completely transformed it. That lady would be later killed in a car wreck. Uh, She was hit by a drunk driver. But I'm telling you, it completely transformed my... I can't even imagine what my family would look like today had that not happened. Her persistence and just unwavering, just... I just just persistence. There's another word that I want to use, but I don't want to make her sound like a bull. This lady was very influential. Let's just put it that way. She did not take no for an answer. She'd have been a great salesman. Okay? She would have been a great salesman. So anyway, but that happened, that persistence, and because of that, it completely transformed 
my family's life. So when I grew up in church, I grew up with an understanding of who God was. At some point in children's church, I got born again. Some people can tell you the day that it happened. I cannot. I'll never forget the time I got baptized in the Holy Spirit. I didn't truly fully understand it. We had a guest minister in and he was praying for people. And so I went up front and I was probably 12. I don't even know. I was young. And as I'm standing there and the man's praying, he's got his hands upon me, he's praying for me. I don't know what that exactly meant, baptism in the Holy Spirit. But essentially it's like, man, if God has this for me, I want that, whatever that is, right? And so as I'm standing here with my, my eyes closed and my hands up and he's praying for me, all I could see with my eyes closed was this black screen. And it was like watching the credits and it was like this one word came up in white and it was gibberish. It didn't make any sense. I had no idea what it was. And I watched one get to the top and then I watched another and I watched another. And finally the guy says, just say what you see. And I'm like, okay, I don't think you're going to like it, but I'll say it. And I did, but again, now I don't often tell that story, especially somebody that's, because that was weird. That's, prove that in the Bible, right? I don't know what to do with that. It was just weird. But the thing was, is so my, most of my life was fully devoted to Christ. I spent time sharing the gospel with people. I'd go around and pass out tracks. If you remember the $20 bill tracks that I dropped them all over the school, all over the gas station. I did all sorts of stuff. I mean, I was always doing something. And then something happened, and I, I got bitter. And I got tired of trying to live this good, squeaky clean life. And I just like, you know what? I'm just try, tired of trying to meet everybody's standards. So I rebelled. And uh, I was about 16. I might have been 15. I don't remember exactly how old I was. And I started partying. I started doing things. I started drinking. And I had this friend of mine, and I went to church with him. And we'd go out to his place, and, and we would have a good time. And there was one night... I was going to go out there camping. And this has been going on for several weeks. So I was going to go out there camping with him. And I didn't know he was having a party out there. But he often did have parties out there. And I'm standing there. And I'm just waiting to go camping. I hadn't been drinking. I hadn't been doing anything. And this girl from my class comes up to me. And she says, Chris Schimmel, what are you doing here? And I, of course, thought she was hitting on me. Because who could blame her? And I just said, I'm just hanging out. What are you doing here? And she's like, I can't believe you're at something like this. I thought you were the good Christian kid. And I was like, well, I'm just, actually, I'm waiting for him. We're going to go camping later, I'm, but I'm not drinking or anything. She's like, yeah, but I'm just shocked you'd even be at something like this. And then she walked away. Now, I'm not the smartest guy, but I realized right there, she wasn't hitting on me. But it was a kick to the gut. Because she knew me by what I had claimed, and suddenly my actions didn't match my speech. Um, you want to talk about conviction, that was conviction. And so I realized something then at, at, you know, 15, 16 years old, is like, everything matters. You see, at that moment, I had taken the Lord's name in vain. You guys following me on this? I want to make sure you get this. So this matters. Now, the term Christian that we throw around so loosely, and it's thrown around very loosely today, is we don't even know where it comes from, but it really is, it doesn't have a, a big part to play in the New Testament. It's used three times in the New Testament. That's it. So it's not something that's thrown around, but let's look at this. I want to show you guys this today. I'm setting some stuff up for the next couple of weeks, but I want to, I want to lay a base for this, okay? We're going to go over to Acts chapter 11. Now, Acts chapter 11, the events of Acts chapter 11 were sometime in the mid-40s. So if we assume that Jesus 
uh, died and was resurrected around the 30 range. We're approximately 10, 15 years later, okay? In that range, okay? Verse 19, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Do you guys realize how many times it says that? I know I keep hammering on that, but this idea that, you know, it, it has to imply the full of the Holy Spirit aspect, there might be something to that. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed from, uh, for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was for the whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This is the first time that this name is applied. This is less, approximately 15 years after the church was formed. Approximately. It took 15 years for this name to take place. Isn't that fascinating? Now, I know you all have read this. This is shortly after the whole event with Cornelius and, and the Gentiles getting saved and all of that. So there's a transformation going on in the mind of the disciples. But for the very first time, they're being called Christians. Now, why do you think they were being called Christians at that point? Well, there seems to be something that they are now putting a name to associate this group of people that has separated themselves and not doing things like everybody else. Fair enough. Just stay with me on that. Let's go to Acts chapter 26. Verse 1. Now I'm skipping a ton of context in all of these just so you can get the, the references. And I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. In fact, I may cut this in, uh, short just a little bit just for time's sake. But Acts chapter 26 verse 1, it says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I thank myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all, thing, all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So in other words, he's telling him, just wait it out. Now, Paul's been arrested here, and he's making his case. But he's just said, give me some time. Let me explain my position. Verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. All right, so now we know what a Pharisee is, right? They were separatists. So he's explaining, when he says that term Pharisee, he doesn't have to explain it. It's already known how a Pharisee lives his life. And verse 6, now I stand and have judged for the hope of the promise of God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes earnestly serving God, night and day, hope to attain. For this, hope, uh, for this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? So where is he turning his attention now? To what has happened with Jesus? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now understand what he's saying. He's like, I was a Pharisee of the strictest order. There was no middle ground for me. 
I did what Pharisees do. And on top of that, I had orders to go and go against this name of Jesus. You see, that name was upon his followers. He couldn't attack Jesus directly. He had to attack his followers. So he goes and he gets them and he would gather them up. And he said, every time I would cast my vote to put them to death. This was my role. I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in every synagogue. And I compelled them to blaspheme. I was exceedingly enraged against them. And I persecuted them and pushed them to foreign cities. Why was that a big deal? Because a Jew did not go to a foreign city. It would make them unclean. So understand what he's saying here. He is setting this up. Verse 12. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me, and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. So he's going to deliver them from the Jews and the Gentiles. Who's left? None. That's everybody. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Now, stop for a moment. Understand what the claim he had made. He was a Pharisee of the strictest order. He has an encounter with Jesus and now realizes he has to do what? Change. He's implying that this strictest order is not in line with God. Therefore, God has put me on mission to tell them to repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, verse 21, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, you notice he didn't say, now let me tell you about this. He said, that which the prophets and Moses said would come. What's he doing? He's implying an authority that came before him. The words that how God spoke through the prophets, through Moses, these things were written down. That he said the Christ would suffer and he would be the first to rise from the dead and he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. He's telling him to get out of the books. You've lost your mind. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. What thing? The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. He knows about all this. The king knows. 
This wasn't some hidden fact. He knows. What does 1 Corinthians 15 say? He appeared first to Cephas, and then the twelve, and then to over 500 at once, many of whom who are still alive. There were hundreds of people, thousands of people that knew about this event. The Pharisees who were in charge knew about the event because they tried to bribe the guard. They knew what was going on. So, verse 26, For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Why did he say that? Because he's already applied there. And he said what the Moses and the prophets said, that the Christ would die and be the first to rise from the dead. He says, do you believe what the prophets said? Then King Agrippa said to Paul, watch this. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these change. When he said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor in, uh, in Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man has done nothing deserving of death or change. Then King Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And there's a whole story behind all of that. But he says, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. That's the second time that that term is used. And only the second time. Now, what did Paul do? Did he just start with his testimony? No. He applied to an authority that the king already agreed with, that the Moses and the prophets spoke from God. His vision, his testimony lines up with that. And the acts that happened during his lifetime under his authority, King Agrippa, you already know about it. Nothing gets past you. That's the second time Christian is used. First Peter chapter 4, you'll see the third time. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. On their part He is blasphemed, but on your part He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, and an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So, these are the three times, and the only three times, the word Christian is used. Now, we have a whole religion based upon it, right? The Christian religion, the Christian faith. But these are the only three times that it's used. Now, as I've said, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means anointed one. It's the Greek equivalent to Mashiach or Messiah. It was the name that Jesus was given by the angel Gabriel. Christ is his title. It signifies that he was sent from God to be a king, to be a deliverer. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. However you want to say it. But God gave him his name. His name has now been given to the church. You see, these people were beginning to be set apart. But prior to the whole Christian thing, a term was used. It was called the way. They were followers of the way. Let me show you this. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Then Saul, while still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
So Christian and followers of the way are one in the same. Just so you know. We know that because Paul just made that distinction. This is where he got the authority. And then he tells the story of what we just read of where he was using the authority to persecute the Christians. Now, interesting is called the way. And it's interesting what Jesus said. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You see, he's making a distinction about his followers. Look at Acts chapter 19. Verse 1, I promise, I won't go too long. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so he said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Paul said that John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, and that is, on Christ Jesus. So when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Terry, that's exactly what we were talking about this morning. You see, we've, we were talking about this, and it's important you understand. You become a Christian, you don't cash out your brain. Paul spends three months reasoning and persuading, not like, oh, come here for your best life now. Because guess what? At that time, there was no best life now. Your life was likely cut short. But he was using logic and reason to persuade them of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew to uh, the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So you see the way, again, they're speaking evil of the way. Why were they speaking evil of the way? They did not like how they were living. He did not like what they were saying, so they spoke evil of it. Look at verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now I'm going to stop, and I'm not spend a lot of time here. But itinerant means traveling. That means that these were Jewish exorcists that went around the area, and they would exorcise the demons. Okay? Now, what that looked like exactly, I don't know. Is it a little more Linda Blair than what maybe we, we would expect? Perhaps. The Exorcist, if you don't know what I'm head spinning. Okay, never mind. Forget about it. Okay? Don't go watch the movie. It's awful. We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. We call this a failure. This did not work out well. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So we got two different groups of people. We've got Jesus' name being invoked in both circumstances, okay? One, it works with Paul, and one, it doesn't work with those other guys. Why is that? Because it's not a matter of the name, it's the authority above, uh, 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 in the name. 
and in the name and the authority can only be applied by those whose name is upon those in the body. You follow me so far? Just stay with this. this is, again, we're setting stuff up for next week. Let me finish this up. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, and when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, he go to, to go to Jerusalem saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. About the what? About the way. A great commotion about those who were following Christ. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. And he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this tra trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with these hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So you guys see the followers of the way, the Christians are the same. But it's the name upon them. That's what I want you to get. Now, I'm going to pick this up next week. I'm going to let you all get out of here. All right? But I want you to just keep that in mind. It's the understanding of why we are called what we are called. And with that comes a certain responsibility. So we will pick this up next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, Lord, and that in all things that we are made right by you. And that you have given us your name. And it's the name that is above every name. And it's at that name that every knee will bow. And Lord, I thank you that there is nothing named above you. And Lord, that we walk in the fullness of the authority that you have given us, Lord. That we may be your representative on this earth. Lord, I thank you for doors of opportunity that open themselves up this week. That we can share your love, mercy, compassion, and the gospel with those around us. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.